What's going on, everyone? This is episode 38 of the official Krause House podcast. 38. I don't know if you pulled this up yet, but 38 is I a haven't. brutal one. Um, Shawnee Brown Jr., Kwame Brown, Kwame, Anthony Cook. Oh my gosh. So, you know what? I- first of all, there's 11 players total, by far the fewest that we've seen. Yeah. Wow. And I don't wow, recognize yeah. a single name besides Kwame Brown, which is not Kwame the Brown. best name to recognize, to be honest. Yeah. Wow. So we had recently one, I thought 36 was actually one of the most prestigious groups. And now we're finding 38 might be one of the least, like not a single player. How much do you think Kwame scores in, in men's league? A, do you think he's still playing in men's league? And B, if he's playing right now, because he's probably roughly our age, a little bit older. No, dude, he's probably roughly our age because he was only 18 and we were older than him probably. No, we weren't older than him. I remember seeing him play in high school and just going as a fan to attack. Yeah, no, he's definitely a few years older than us. But he wore him on a pit on the Pistons in 09 and 2010. Dude, it, to answer your question, he's dominating men's league. Dominating. Absolutely. Like you ever seen those clips of Brian Scalabrini playing like regular people? Oh, yeah, yeah. So he's 6'11". <laughs> he's 40, so he's born in 82. But yeah, I mean, his last year in the league was about 10 years ago. Not quite, but almost 10 years ago. And he was averaging, I want to see his per 36. He's averaging five points per 36. He didn't play much. He did start 11 games for the Sixers. But you're right. He's probably absolutely cooking. I, he strikes me, I don't know. I'd be really curious if he loves the game. He played in the league a lot longer compared to how challenging it must have been to deal with all the drama of it all played in the league quite a long time he's anthony big it's anthony bennett's biggest fan because he was probably <laughs> he was probably one of the biggest busts of all time until that guy showed up so uh no i mean dude he's dominating any men's league he goes to you're right i don't i don't know if he has the love for the game but yeah. so we need to spin up a little stream and it's we talk about this decentralized scouting network for an nba team and how that'd be super valuable it's like we need a decentralized highlight of men's league runs for former players and i don't want the the chino hill like i want kwame at his local lifetime playing just dropping 50 and i only need to see it one time and that's why the decentralized network would be so great it's just go there film kwame playing one time just let me just get a taste of it and then i want to go see ben wallace playing in a pickup run what is richard hamilton doing right now just give me some random dudes that are still playing a little bit and just let me see them cook that's actually it reminds me of Right after I graduated, my local gym, like the gym, it's not in D.C. or any big city, like the gym that's 20 minutes or sorry, like five minutes from my house. I played in a men's league against Drew Gooden. Do you remember Drew Gooden? Oh, yeah. Kansas and then bounced around the league for a while. Yeah, right. He had the little or the no on his head. He had the little strip. The back. Yeah, the back. The Yeah, that little back. That might be my next haircut. I may or may not have a mullet right now, but my next haircut? No, I know. I think you need the Drew Gooden patch back there with little <laughs> strands. That's just a rat tail. Let's get you a rat tail. Tell me, guys. <laughs> so he played. Like, it, I, we played against our team, played against his team. And yeah, and it's like he was a joke, everything like that. And he easily had 50. Like, they, these guys, they're it's just in a different, a different world. But to your point, record that ship it out and let's see all these bums just playing against your average Joe at your local lifetime fitness and you'd be stunned. 
Yeah, it would just be fun. I love the Katino Mobley stuff that he's doing and the Chino Hills run and whatnot, and obviously big three competitor as well. But just watching him get buckets, even the former college guys, like I just, there's just something really nostalgic about it. And the thing that you're talking about, Drew Gooden and the games that I've been in that realm, you're always just, I think, blown away at how good of a shooter they are. Because in your mind, you're <laughs> framing everything into the NBA's expectations. You're like, oh, like Drew Gooden's not a good outside shooter. I'm guessing if he's left wide open in a pickup run, and their definition of open is obviously much, much more like if you, you have a hand down and you're not up in their face, you're open. And so I bet you he shoots, you know, 35% from three, especially from college three or high school three, right? Like he's probably considered for a pickup run, like an excellent three point shooter, which is just, it is amazing because he's obviously a great inside guy. But then to add that, that's crazy. Well, let's have an all around game. As you're saying that, remind me, I'm like, man, did we get fooled again for the 60 in a row when a clip surfaces of Giannis hitting like 10 threes in a row and everyone goes crazy? And they're like, this is like, how many summers in a row do we have to see that? Yes. And then everyone's like, oh my God, this is the year. And then he's b- below average. I'm sorry, that's a sore subject. But no, it's, it's right though. Every year they, there is a clip of Giannis shooting threes and everyone goes like league on watch out. And I, even, I think I tweeted it even from Krausehaus and it's the same thing. And to your point, Giannis's problem. So there were that clip, my Bucks friends and I, we were going deep on it. And one of the things I noticed on it is that he would gather every single shot from his left hip over and up into his right shot, shot pocket and then would release. And I think the shot from the shot pocket and on was is good. And I got into it with everyone and saying, I just think that if you're Giannis and you're that tall and that long, bringing the ball to your lower left side and then bringing it up into that spot, I think it's a very inefficient movement. And you're giving the defender an opportunity to get his hand, start messing with you. And so if I were coaching Giannis shooting, which is not someone he should hire, but you know, take it for what it's worth, I would much prefer him to catch it higher in the shot pocket and release right from the shot pocket because he's already so tall. He already has like more of a think of like a Dirk style shot rather than this kind of sweeping through almost like a Steph Curry or something. A lot of the guards do sweep through like that, but that's because they're in the attack position. And I know Giannis is an attacker, but I'd rather him not have to get into triple threat and just sort of like, you're either going to take it, catch it, fire it in confidence, not necessarily this like triple threat jab step. Like you're not James Harden, you're not Steph, like, like you're either shooting it or not, and that will manipulate the game. But then I went and watched Kyle Korver shoot around, Mike Miller, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and all their shot pockets. It was really interesting. This is just a complete aside. Really the only person that maintained that shot pocket at that level is really Cal Corver. And coincidentally enough, I found a video of Mike Miller teaching kids how to shoot, telling them to not bring it down low and sweeping it through and bringing it up to the shot pocket, just immediately have it up high and into the shot. And then I watched him work out and he did the exact opposite. So fun fact of my wasteful time that I feel like I added a little bit of productivity there. Yeah, that's true. Going back to, to Drew Gooden and some of these other guys, it is crazy watching them. They're, as the kids would call it, their bag, like these shots of not, I'm not even necessarily talking outside. I don't remember him hitting a ton of threes. It was just more of these 10 footer, like fadeaways that are just like by all intense versus like pretty difficult shots to hit, especially in the NBA. These, they just don't miss with that kind of, with, with that kind of range, especially with NBA experience. And when you're playing your everyday person, that starts to bubble up. I thought too, we've always talked about this where these off-season pickup runs that's where i think i'm obsessed with them is it's just a very different style it's almost like you're watching different basketball and 
watching them, you're in awe of how good these guys are. So it sounds like you're coming around. Yeah, absolutely. There was a video that was just going viral the other day. I think, was it one of the, one of Giannis's brothers or something? I think it was one of Giannis's brothers, but like he like cooks this guy and dunks on him and everyone's like, oh my God, this guy's killing it in the runs. I'm like, wait a second. That was Thon Maker guarding him. So to your point about these runs, right? It's they're like these D1 athletes. These guys are playing overseas, like these like really talented people. And then also you realize it's, oh, that's actually someone in the NBA that gets real playing time that you just, you didn't pay attention to, to realize that they weren't just a random. And so it's just like, dude, I, I, I hear you, man. It's a, it's an amazing mix of basketball. Yeah. I, I, I love watching the Rico Hines runs. If you guys haven't seen those, check it out. Just literally type in Rico Hines on YouTube. And the other day. It's normally star-studded. I've never seen anything like this before. It was Trey Young and Steph on one side of the ball, Pascal Siakam, Paul George, and Cade Cunningham on the other team. They had some UCLA guys in there. Armani Bailey, I think, is that his name? Committed to UCLA, played at Sierra Canyon. I'm like, this is insane. And so they played seven all-ones, end it with a free throw. These games go so quick, and it's crazy. They just don't miss because they're not playing terribly tough D there's there's rarely double teams if any at all shout out Booker and so there's they're just con- the turnover this game and they're just incredible to watch highly fast pace oh man it's great yeah man it's it's a special little time of basketball and I love it man by the way I did want to give a little shout out to MCon that's going on that I'm not attending and I'm bummed that I won't be there but it sounds like it's gonna be a great event especially for anyone in Dowland but just wanted to give a shout out I know cabin guys uh, the cabin Dow guys are doing a bunch of cool stuff at MCon and a bunch of other amazing projects as well but bummed if it can't go but was looking forward to that one yeah I actually went last year it's a good event or conference I should say multiple events what I like about MCon is compared to the other crypto conferences is that it's very, it's, there's a lot of operators there, a lot of DAO operators, there's a lot of thought leadership. It's uh, the Think Boy Super Bowl, but that's good. Like everyone coming together and it's not just about the party. It seems like all the other conferences, there's a conference going on and no one really cares. There's some panels and it's all about the events. I think MCON almost like flips that. There's definitely some parties afterwards and people renting out different bars and things like that, but the sessions are so valuable and you really start to feel that these people in this room are pushing kind of the DAO, specifically the DAO world forward. And so going to these things, you bounce around from session to session and you're just getting a lot of amazing info. It's not particularly big as far as the amount of people that go compared to other conferences, which is a good thing. And people there are hyper-focused on best practices and moving, like I said, the DAO ecosystem forward. So it's a great event. Hopefully some Crosshouse people go check it out. We can't be there, unfortunately, but yeah, shout out to MCon. Denver, gorgeous state. Sunshine, capital of the world. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, it's not, that's a, I was really hoping you'd meet me on my wavelength here. That's an old school quote. One of my absolute favorite movies, Luke Wilson, in the very beginning of the movie, is like completely hammered at a wedding. That's what he says about Denver. And I just, I fucking love that movie. Oh yeah. Actually, I've heard that. They say there's over 300 days of sunshine a year, which is less impressive if it's 20 below for most of the 300. <laughs> no, not Denver. Great city. I hope I didn't offend any, any Denver folks there. Let's, while we're on the topic of 
DAOs and you being a governance nerd. Briefly before the show, we were talking about a debated instance that we've even gotten some opinions outside of Crosshouse on what to do. And it seems to be fairly split. Set the stage. What was the question that you posed? Yeah, let's dive into that. Yeah, so self-voting in governance proposals. I think there's two ideals that are carried over from nation states, democracies that we run into a bit with DAO governance. One is this idea of like self-interest voting and of how that should be handled. And then one person, one vote. Those are the two things that I've noticed the most, especially with a Crosshouse has a very large group of people that this is their first DAO or their first kind of experience with Web3. And so they sometimes carry those, I'm going to use the word biases. That's probably too, I'm probably rounding out that perception a little bit, but this sort of bias with that. And so the self-voting one, we had a particular proposal go through. It was a 50-50 vote, which we don't often tend to see. Someone voted, the person that was directly benefiting from it voted in favor of themselves and the proposal won by that amount that they voted. And so there was just some conversation about that. And I think it really, to your point, elicited a really good debate on whether or not that's totally appropriate. Is that a social norm? Is that an ideal? What is that? And I think the most fascinating part of it is that you may have a sort of intuition about it. And I think that's how most people react to it. It's, hey, if you, you know, if you can vote on it for yourself and it's a direct payment to yourself as an example, you can't vote for it. That's sort of, it seems to be the intuitive human position. But what's really challenging with DAOs is that you start to get the nuances of, well, direct benefit versus indirect benefit. And then you start getting into like, what if I'm on the team of those people? And so now you're getting into what if you're a chunk of it versus all of it? And you start to get in this really subjective thing. And then in addition, you get into the enforceability of it saying, okay, let's just say that we did all agree that you couldn't. How do you enforce that? How do you know without KYCing every single wallet? and trying to basically break a crypto tenant around identity, you have to sacrifice identity for kind of self-interest and kind of balancing those two. And so it's just really opened up a really interesting debate and conversation. And I think really the answer is going to be somewhere in the middle. Like we're going to have to make a preference and then make structures to try to honor that preference. But I think there's rational arguments on both sides and one is a little bit more technical and one's a little bit more emotional. But as you pull in one direction, you can pull apart on the other direction. And I don't really think there's a clean solution on either side of this choice. So I just think that's really, really fascinating debate in this. And so that's been what's been going on. But yeah, we're curious, like, what's your kind of, I think, intuitive reaction versus like what you've heard, like the spirit of just talking it out. Just curious how you see it. Yeah, I think Luke K articulated this really well. Luke K, a member of the Stewards team and someone that we chat with quite a bit, a valued member of the Crosshouse community. I think the direct economic benefit is an important distinction. I think setting the indirect aside for a second, I think when you're dealing with one token, one vote, and not necessarily one person, one vote, like you see in our in our democracy, but it feels that it's a easier standard to not vote on proposals where you have a direct economic benefit, especially when there's varying weights. Like I just mentioned, one token, one vote. I think it becomes really difficult to, or I guess over the long term, adopt that kind of, hmm. yeah, it seems 
more more variable if you do that and create some complexities moving downstream versus if you just didn't vote on anything, especially if you draft it and then ultimately say, I'm getting direct economic benefit from something like this, I will choose to abstain and let others determine whether or not this proposal is valid. That just seems like the right way to do things. But to your point, when you start adding those variables of indirect, I think it becomes a little bit more difficult to manage. So I don't know that I think that's why it's such a difficult problem. And we've seen both and trying to draw it from real world examples is such a, it's really tough to do because I think I've, I've had two school of thoughts when trying to think of anything progressive in this DAO or web three world is that I start from the outsides in what is the real world scenario, centralized world, corporate world, whatever it is, what's the equivalent and how is it done? And should we do the same thing? Or I started everything like, how is it done in the traditional world? And then what's the exact opposite of that? And then maybe try mm-hmm. to work outside in. I, I think the distinction between one person, one vote is in one token, one vote is actually interesting here. Cause it's like the token, especially through web three, we always talk about what's really interesting about it is that it doesn't necessarily have to be tied purely financial. It could be from contribution. So why that I think is interesting is if you do them financially, acquire your tokens from a financial perspective on an exchange or something, then I think it becomes really problematic. People can buy their way into certain positions and accelerate their economic benefit based on their proposal. But if you earn them from contribution, does that change? If you earn them from doing good work over time in a DAO, being able to use those tokens, is that different? Maybe. So I just think it's really difficult to draw the comparisons from the real world because the accrual of tokens or acquisition of tokens, I think in this case matters. Yeah. Two things jump out to me. One is social DAOs might be different because there is a sense of trust and agreement in what you're doing and kind of pursuing this mission. And I think a lot of these tenants have sprung out of an adversarial structure, right? So Bitcoin assumes that you can't trust anyone and that you know, you, you vote with your mining power. And like, there's this assumption that the entire system is adversarial. I know Dow House and talking with some of the engineers, I think Spencer, you sort of assuming adversarial space. And then once you make that assumption, then I think some of these decisions become much more clear. So self-voting starts to become the norm because it's unenforceable. And but you just assume the entire governance structure is adversarial. I can't trust anyone. And I think a lot of these social DAOs have started without an adversarial assumption. And so now they start to walk into more adversarial environment. And so I think some of these assumptions change. Second thing is shout out to Colony for their governance thinking is you, I think, painted a really interesting distinction that they're trying to solve for on chain, which is to say, hey, earning native tokens and getting governance influence in that thing is different than buying them. Yet the token itself, as we know, has this utility in the governance structure. And so one of the things that they've done that I think is a really interesting workaround is to say, when you get paid out in the native token, you also earn effectively a non-transferable governance token that is what they call reputation. It's technically metadata in their network, decentralized network. But for the sake of this conversation, it could just be a non-transferable governance token in addition to the, the token that may have financial incentives in it, which obviously DeFi protocols, this is something that would be more 
suited for them as an example. And you essentially get both. And what's really interesting about that is then you only obviously vote with the governance token and you can do whatever you want with the financial token. And so they've, I feel like have forked that moment. And you interestingly brought up that exact same moment. It's like you earned into this, you didn't buy into this. And when you earn into this, we want you to have a bigger voice in this project than the people who bought into it, which in their world might be effectively zero. I think there's some ways that you could potentially modify their voting structures, but generally speaking, and I think it's probably the most interesting intellectual solution to what you brought up that I've seen and have heard anyone even trying to work on. And yet it might be this sort of the golden solution. I like that. Again, another, certainly not controversial, but another debated topic of it is like the dual token model. It solves certain things, but I've seen kind of good pros and cons of having that. But yeah, that's Certainly an interesting way to do, because I think those are vastly different mechanisms as far as earning versus buying. But also who's saying that, not that anyone's paying me is acquiring them financially is bad. That's not the, that's not the word, but like that has other ways of benefiting the DAO other than contribution. So to not be able to vote with something that had been acquired also seems too black and white. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, absolutely. For example, we bought ours on the open market. And as a form of governance, obviously with good intent. So it's not necessarily a bad thing that you want to acquire more, say, from a financial perspective. So I think the split, I don't know enough details about how Conley's thinking about it and like more about that than I do. But um, yeah, I think like right now it's just, it's just earning. And, but one of the interesting ideas that I took away from that is you could think about it as a module and the module has settings. And then you could think about governance having variables within the settings of like, how much do you want those things to weigh? So you could, in theory, have like a 50% earned, a 50% bought voting power structure. I don't think they currently support this, but like their mm. infrastructure in theory would. And then you as a community could effectively decide that. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. So I think it's like just a novel approach that also just touched on exactly what you're talking about. And I, the other part of my mind, and I just can't shake this is I think one of the beautiful things about crypto broadly, and it has downsides, and I, we've talked about this before, but I feel like crypto is this hyper-capitalism experiment that we're running as a species. And when I think about it in that lens, and there are people are going to be listening to this and saying there are serious downsides of capitalism, and I agree, but it's also seemingly like one of the most productive mechanisms that we've had. Again, plenty of areas to improve on it. But if crypto is this hyper-capitalism experiment that we're running, then to me, from first principles thinking, we'd want to lean even more into the capitalist view of that process. And you would probably be like, okay, yep, self-voting is totally fine because we just, going back to that structure of assuming an adversarial governance, we just need to assume an adversarial governance and you build all your rules up from that point. And then anything, any rule you can't enforce on chain is a game that you can go play. And shout out to the redacted cartel guys, right? Like they've really leaned into that with this idea of bribing for governance votes as a platform. And that's like wild. And I think like a lot of going back to our intuitive experiences of what we think a democracy could or should be the ideals. I think it's just like a really interesting counterexample that's being like, nope, like, Everything's adversarial. Everything is hyper-efficient market. And this is just another tool to accomplish a goal. And like, it's wild. Is crypto looked at as hyper-capitalist? 
I feel like there's some like at least ideologies of like progressivism kind of baked in as well. Both yeah, around. I think in Web3 and like in the DAO ecosystem, specifically the social DAO ecosystem that you and I love to build mostly in, I would agree with everything you're saying. I think crypto broadly, in my opinion, is a more of an experiment of hypercapitalism. Yeah. And taking things like trading, pure speculation, maybe I don't want to just blanket statement of all DeFi, but like certainly parts of DeFi. All of DeFi. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, potentially. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I'm just saying you're like tokenizing everything. And so this idea of what does it look like to tokenize your house and tokenize your laptop and tokenize your bandwidth that you're using and my membership, my social, like all the stuff we talk about. And then even we talk about like social staking and derivatives and you have this yield, like all those concepts to me are rooted in capitalism. And I think that done in the right use cases drive a ton of freedom. And the thought that we've talked about this before, but it's like my laptop when I'm not using it does have processing power that in theory could be used as part of a network. And people do that with bandwidth. And do, and that is to me a form of capitalism of just hopping into that inefficiency with my computer basically being idle on cheap electricity. I don't know. That, that to me seems like the underpinning. I would say that it's the financialization of everything. I don't know. I don't know if I'd say mm. it's the hyper capitalistic way of everything because there's finances in all type of like political ideologies. Like, I think there's yeah, a, there's yeah, huge pieces that are certainly capitalist, but when you fractionalize your house or take some, I guess that's a financial thing in its own, but like social staking, for example, right? Like we've had at least a few episodes talking about that. It's certainly financializing something that's not financial now, but I wouldn't know if I would use the term hyper-capitalist on it. I, yeah, I feel like I financialization covers everything, I think like hyper capitalist, you don't have to pick and choose parts of crypto that, that yeah. fit into that. I think you're probably right. But just because I love debating you there, <laughs> I think the piece that I would then resist is that like the reason you're financializing everything is ultimately because of capitalism. If capitalism wasn't the underpinning engine of financializing everything, what's the point of financializing everything? Because it ultimately all the jobs to be done that we're talking about of doing all these things generally yield you either like more time or money from taking that action or benefit, I should say. Yeah. Maybe I have my ukulele out just singing Kumbaya, but I think there's some other things too. I wouldn't say, I just think of the term hyper-capitalist. I feel like it's discounting some of the things like you get through, for example, Krauss mission of having access to something um, and I, I don't mean being on the cap table because that's obviously financial and capitalist as well. But like I'm talking when you think about maybe things at the stadium, access players, f like self-organizing teams to allow you to work on things and be more fulfilled that don't necessarily tie directly to, to finances, opportunities that present themselves. I don't know. I think there's parts of that. I'm not ready to say it's 100% um, yeah. capitalist, but it's a fair point. I think those are emergent positive effects of capitalism. But I think that those are like outputs to like the benefits of capitalism. So it's like if you assume capitalism as a like a mechanism, then derives those things like I think that's what derives those things, at least in our modern society. So it's yep, like I put in capital or time, I put time like working capital or financial capital into this engine, which is Krauss And then I receive back either access or equity or governance, like whatever the mechanisms that fall into my little pocket because we financialize 
everything. I think it's more of an output is how I hear that. But I, we're probably drawing <laughs> lines in the sand of like relatively movable. So let's do this. I, and I haven't thought about this all. I don't have a point in here, but it's just a thought experiment. Let's go like, what are the fundamental, I'll use like socialism or communism or something like that. The fundamental basis points of those are why they would be beneficial if you're on that side. What aspects of those ideologies can you immediately draw into crypto? And does, so if it basically transitive property, if you can find one that's communist ideology and apply it to crypto, would that mean that there's a mix of both? Yeah, it's a good thought experiment. I... Yeah. So if I'm a like authoritarian, fully communist style entity, you still could financialize everything, put it all on the blockchain or whatever version. I guess it probably wouldn't be on the blockchain because you want to be able to control it. And then maybe that is part of the distinction. I guess you could put it on the blockchain, but like you would control a node that updates said blockchain, but it wouldn't be decentralized. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could still do, you could issue NFTs for people to have particular access to different experiences. They could earn those by pledging good behavior to the party. So you could do all these sort of reward mechanisms that are financial or beneficial in a way that is not capitalist. So perhaps you are right. You'd put all through the lens of benefiting the party. Yeah, yeah. There's a fundamental question of whether or not you can like actually do that in a like decentralized, you know, way and maybe that is like maybe the whole concept breaks at that point because maybe you need bitcoin and ethereum to be like uncensorable to like to, to for that whole ecosystem to even match the definition of the words that we're trying to articulate for let's just assume that then you're probably right yeah interesting cool so we're coming up on time it's quickly going through i came across this on tiktok it's nba related i want to run through some nba players that i'm ready all right. I so got my mustache out. I said this, uh, I probably said that a, a little backwards, but let's go, <laughs> let's go through. So Patrick Beverly joins the Lakers, right? So a lot of people, what does that mean for Russ? Not good. Not good. So there's a chance our guy Russ will not be playing. For, there's a chance for some ranch. <laughs> will not be playing for an NBA team. So I want to quickly go through. He has a lot of hate. I see on Twitter, dude's a bum. Get him out of the league. I want to run through some point guards with you. And I want to say, I want you to do this or that. Who had just the better career up until now, right? And to be clear, do I get to define better or do you want to put some guardrails on this? No guardrails. You have to pick which person has, if you pick one or the other and I find it either interesting or yep. it's a hot take, I agree with whatever, I might ask you to explain yep. why, but you know, it's gun to your head. Who had the better career? You ready? Chris Paul. Chris Paul. Ooh, we're off to we're off to a good start. Wait, <laughs> why? Why? I think specifically that finals performance and kind of being able to take his teams far with Houston and now Phoenix, and then obviously the Clippers were definitely a low light in that regard, but still put together pretty competent teams and played really high level during all that time and played a very great point guarding position in that. I think I think I take that over sort of some of the quote unquote MVP ish seasons that that Russ had and similar close but no cigar situations yeah i think i gotta go just with russ for the accolades i think it's just i think he's i basically cool. don't count his rebounding accolades so let me just start with a massive bias as i think that any year that he every year especially after durant left that his rebounding stats are about 33 percent inflated and i can bring receipts and show you steven adams letting rebound after rebound go but oh i will be i'll be the first to admit i have never been a Westbrook guy ever. I just, 
I've after this latest news and especially after last year, I like I don't know, maybe it's just the empath kicking in, but I'm like the guy has had a decent career and he's just basically, he's just the scum of the earth in the basketball world right now. But yeah. um, and I, I feel, and I feel you on that. And one of the things is has been his attitude and his comments and the media just keeps doubling down. He said this in his exit. Oh, sure. He's like, well, I put up my stats. Like I had a great season. It's dude, like just a little bit more self-awareness on this man. Like just say, man, I didn't have a great season. Like it is what it is, bros. I'm going to have fun. Peace. Like, like it's just a vibe thing. And he's just, he hates the media, which hey, they hate him. Totally. Um, Jimmy Butler. Yeah, I'll give it to Russ on that one. I think I would too. I'm no. not a big Jimmy guy. Like, he's great. And I just don't like, I don't love that he threatened to fight Spolstra. I don't <laughs> like that he only turns it on in the playoffs. And like, he's a great player. Seems like Miami Heat culture is perfect for him and all that stuff. But we'll give Russ a, a, a good nod on that one. James Harden. I'll take Harden. That one I thought about longer than expected i went with harden as well i, I think harden spent a long time thinking about that yeah the next few years he still has a shot at coming back so his story's not even over but go ahead yeah demar Derozan. yeah russ yeah what about you definitely russ i wish demar got somewhere that you found a fit sooner like then i think the story is different but he found it too late it is what it is devin booker too young. Yeah, Russ, right now. I certainly, if I had to put money on where it all ends, certainly Booker. Yeah. Uh, I think I had one more. Oh, Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi. Yeah, Kawhi. That's the easiest one on this list. I don't even know. It's a, that's a no-brainer. Giannis, no-brainer. I was Steph. mostly sticking to guards. Um, oh, sure. But yeah. Former point guard Giannis. Yeah. <laughs> Former new three-point shot Giannis. Steph. Steph's a no-brainer. I don't even include. Yeah, uh, Damian Lillard. Oh, Dame is another one. What do you think? You you would pick Dame over Russ? No, I think I'd go Russ on that one. I honestly I love Dame, but he just quite hasn't done enough in this. He's had a very Russ Brook-ish situation going on, and Russ did a little bit more in that exact same situation. But I love Dame. Dame is funny to me because I like him too. He's tough not to like, but you know what? I, I think he. This is completely an aside. It has nothing to do with Russ. But he, whoever does his marketing, man, and I'm being facetious because it's him. He's somehow made everyone view Dame as this just underdog. Like everyone's counting me out. And in my head, I'm like, he's built up this, like, I'm undersized. I'm like, look at I was like, he's like 6'3". I was like, no one wanted me. He was like the fifth overall pick. And when I view that, I'm like, He's done such a good job of just building this like mighty mouse mentality, even though he's a really good player. And I think his stock has always been, I think a lot of people bet on him. Like it's just amazing that when I think of Dame, I think of the ultimate underdog story and it's not true. Kudos to him on two fronts on that is, so you're probably right. There's probably this media wrapping that has been, but dude, the, his moments that he stepped up and then his memification of himself in those moments, the wave, the face that he's there. He just know he's a performer and obviously he's a musician and all that. And he knows how to put on a show. That's what and I'm saying. I, and that is, I think that's a skill. And then I think the second thing is like, he has continually committed to Portland. And I know it's all been a little on and off kind of thing. And he's really leaned into that. And I, as a Bucks fan and like a Giannis lover and the fact he stayed, it's just that 
also goes a really long way. And I know Russ had his own situation with his exit in Oklahoma. He was similar to that. But those two facts really help you in 2022. It's, can, are you memeable? Do you have some insane highlights that people can pull up on YouTube forever? And then were you able to tell this, like, I stuck with that small market team and I did my absolute, like, you're going to just get love. It's the anti-LeBron love that Dame's stepping into. I know. It's ridiculous, to be honest. Listen, I like Dame. <laughs> I like Dame. But it's just funny when I let all that kind of, that seed get planted in my head. It's the same way everyone else got planted. And it's just funny that we do that with sports. And I get it because it's like ultimate level of competition. But I don't know how we've gotten indoctrinated to that. Like staying with your team in a bad situation, like it increases your legacy. We don't do that in any other thing. Like if you didn't like your job, right? Like no one be like, it's okay because because he stayed in that entry level role for 20 years and like prize to him. No, you're out. You're out of that. That's there. a good that's a really good analogy, though, dude, because Steve Jobs, him le- like getting pushed out of Apple, going and founding Next Computers, which were like insanely amazing computers, but that, for all intents and purposes, that business was probably going to die. Like it, he didn't have a market for those computers. And then getting rehired by Apple and then reinventing the iPod and the iPhone. I think that's a Dame-esque story, which was like in the business world. But what you just described, what I heard of it is like a non-founder type being at a job that they absolutely are miserable with. And then yeah, it's like sticking through it and expecting people to praise them. Totally agree. But I think at the level we're talking about is like at levels of influence. And I think when we see a player in basketball, knowing how dominant a player can be and influential in a team's winning position record. It's that is like a founder explicit thing in business. And I do think we do map that over into business. Maybe right though, because it's serial entrepreneurs like Elon gets extra love for being like, I did it again on my own. I did it again. Maybe that's the equivalent. It's like you just keep betting on yourself. And maybe that's the spirit that an Elon gets the credit for and the dame's getting credit for. Maybe that's the threat. Wow, I have so many devil's advocates positioned Ooh. there. First of all, everything you just outlined, Steve Jobs, screams LeBron James and not him. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Because one, Steve Jobs got fired and LeBron left on his yeah. own court. But yeah. for some reason, we still talk about taking talents to South Beach. And we don't talk about him going back to Cleveland and winning his city a championship. That is the most Steve Jobs comparison you could probably. He got yeah. back into Apple True. and True. did iPod, iPhone, everything, and just catapulted that to the most valuable company in the entire world. There's no more like the parallel there is LeBron, right? And it's like hyper focusing on the leaving is just because there's something around LeBron that people just don't like, which is fine. The leaving, you have to admit, was one of the most cringy things you could have ever have done. Sitting down in front of a local school group of kids and announcing that, like, had he stayed, that that, that idea would have been great. And that's, that's I don't know if you remember, but people were like, oh, he's clearly staying. He's gonna he's asking a bunch of kids to come into a little thing he's doing on ESPN. He's like clearly staying. He would totally tuck his tail and leave. Like, there's no, there's not a single person that said that that was that that was well orchestrated. But I'm saying <laughs> it's like the redemption back. I think makes up for a 10x, right? You're right. It, and I think that's how old yeah. was he? 20, like 24 or something like that. Come on. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. coming back is almost a better story because he's look, I was young. Cleveland's my city. I'm going to come back and I'm going to win these guys a ring. Are you kidding me? But no one, no, like, I'm not saying no one talks about that, but I, we still hear the quotable of taking my talents to South Beach way more than we hear about him. Coming I have back. a hypothesis for you, though. Human, this is like a psychology trait of humans is that 
we tend to have loss aversion. And loss aversion, when you boil it down to the emotions of it, is that we weight negative emotion feelings higher than we do positive ones. And so they're more permanent in our psyche. And so I think in the sports context, what LeBron did was like he hurt people by the way he did it, where he went, how he did it, the super team, the we're not going to win four or five, six, three, like that whole thing he did for 72 hours, like basically hurt people, sports emotions. And it, it takes way more on the positive side to ever return that. And totally, just totally. That's, that's, just that, that's fine. Yeah. That's fine. But other people sitting in the stands, human behavior and psychology is attached to his legacy as a basketball player. That's stupid. So I guess what I'm saying is Dame can get all the pats on the back that he wants that he stayed in Portland. But if yeah. the guy has no MVPs, no rings, dude, okay, maybe you should have gone and played for right. the Lakers, right? Like, so you're talking like popularity or subjectivity versus objectivity and like the subjectivity is influencing the objectivity, specifically LeBron, because of how negative that is. Yeah, who, like, who, like why is that so strongly attached to his legacy of how good of a basketball player he is? In fact, yeah. like you can make an argument it shouldn't matter at all, but instead it matters to people. So like the mutual friend that we have, <laughs> ranks that number one as the reason why he's not the goat like that's crazy so let me okay let me say this let me say this so when we do anything you can argue that business whether you're a founder or whether you're individual contributor whatever there's a competitive component to it even if it's with yourself like i'm not saying a cutthroat and anything like that but like basically anyone who takes that serious at all like they want to do the best we can to get as far as they can just in life and their career. And so what that means is that usually putting yourselves on a path to achieve as much as you possibly can. And so whether that's staying at one company your entire career or moving, starting one company or deciding to close one down to start a new one and move over, that's your entire goal. And so if you are LeBron James and you're sitting in a situation in Cleveland, you're looking at like, how do I become the best basketball player of all time? And he made the choice. How he did it, what he went to go do, blah, blah, blah. That should be almost irrelevant. I know people will disagree with that. But his press conference, him deciding to have a press conference at 24 years old, should have no impact whatsoever on whether or not he's the best player to ever play basketball. I think a lot of people will say basically the whole Heatles run is tainted. That's the other problem. But we can go and start. We, this is probably a whole other episode. We should probably wrap but we thought this would be a short one. It is not a short one, but hopefully it was a good one. Yeah, it is. It might be one of the longest ones. Yeah. All right. Last but not least, Russ or Jason Tatum? Oh, Russ right now. Come Jason on. Tatum. It's, a, it's similar to Booker. Uh, I was only like kidding. I think Jason yeah. Tatum's way too young to even throw him in there. But, but you didn't ask me about Jalen Brown, though, because Jalen Brown far superior. God. Okay. We got it in. We got it in. <laughs> All right, guys, thank you for checking out episode 38. We will be back next week for a new episode. Take care and wag bat. Wag bat.